Dorothy Sayers, the great Christian novelist, writes the following. The incarnation is the most dramatic thing about Christianity, and indeed the most dramatic thing that ever entered into the mind of man. But if you tell people so, they stare at you in bewilderment. The incarnation, in fact, is very familiar to us, but it was shocking. It was counterintuitive. So much so that the disciples and Jesus' own siblings failed to understand initially who Jesus truly was. Even John the Baptist had his doubts. Are you he that should come, or do we look for another? And Philip at one point said to Jesus, well, just show us the Father, and that'll suffice us. And Jesus said, do you not know me? From childhood, we are taught that Jesus was and is God. But do we really understand and fully embrace the truth that God was Jesus? That God became what He made. That the Creator lived among us as a creature. That God became permanently embodied in His creation in the Incarnation. That what began in the virgin womb continues from the virgin tomb. That Jesus continues, God continues in His Incarnation down to the present hour. Have we ever let the words of John 1 and verse 14 then just really disrupt our whole view of reality? John says, and the Word, that's God, that's Jesus, became flesh and tabernacled, lived among us, and we have seen His glory. Well, what kind of glory? Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, let's turn to Mark chapter 2, and let's discover just how disruptive the incarnation really, truly was, and then we'll come back to John. Mark does not include a birth narrative. Rather, if you've read Mark recently, you know that he comes swiftly to the point. He gets us right into Jesus' ministry. And he demonstrates just how disruptive the coming of Jesus was in the Jewish world. And let me begin with an illustration this morning to really help us understand this passage. A man named Thomas Kuhn, K-U-H-N, was possibly the most influential philosopher of science in the 20th century. In his book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, He argues that science is anything but a straightforward objective discipline. Science operates on the basis of what Kuhn calls a paradigm shift. We've heard that terminology a lot. A new coach comes into town, a new paradigm shift, a new business model, a paradigm shift. That language comes from Thomas Kuhn, a new way of viewing the world. A paradigm is a model, a new way of interpreting reality. 
And contrary to popular assumption, scientific knowledge, says Kuhn, does not grow by the steady accumulation of new facts. Rather, scientific knowledge grows when one model or paradigm is replaced by a whole new model, a whole new way of looking at the world. That's a paradigm shift. That's how science develops, says Kuhn. So, for example... Ptolemy, the ancient Greek philosopher and astronomer, assumed the earth lay at the center of the solar system. And what Ptolemy did is he mapped out the motion of all the heavenly bodies around the earth as the fixed, unmovable reference point. And for 1,400 years, astronomers developed elaborate charts and mathematical calculations track the movement of the heavenly bodies around the earth at the center. And those models actually were fairly successful so long as they accounted for anomalies. One of those anomalies was what Kuhn calls retrograde motion. That basically means backwards motion. Some planets at times appeared to move backwards in the night sky. A retrograde motion sounds very scientific, but it's not true. It was simply a failure to take into account the Earth's forward motion. It's like when you're sitting at a stoplight and you see that car next to you and it's rolling backwards and you're wondering, why is that car rolling backwards? Only to realize you're rolling forward. Oh, I'm the one that's moving. So in 1543, a Polish priest named Copernicus published on the revolution of the celestial spheres, and his thesis in that book was very simple. The earth moves. The earth moves. However, when this very simple thesis just worked its way through astronomy, it disrupted everything. Everything changed when we recognize the earth moves. All the elaborate maps of the night sky, all the calculations of the orbits, all the philosophical implications of a geocentric universe with the earth at the center, all of that had to be discarded in favor of a new model. And you can imagine there was resistance to the new model, the new idea. Often people will not consider a new model until there is an accumulation of evidence that exposes the cracks and the foundations of the old model. And you can only patch up those cracks for so long, says Thomas Kuhn. You can only repair the dam for so long until the whole thing just crumbles and you have to then adopt the new model. All right, well... Take that idea, take that notion, and let's apply it to Mark chapter 2. The incarnation introduces to us a very simple idea. God became man. God added humanity to himself. But that simple idea actually exposes misinterpretation of the Old Testament. It crumbles the whole temple system and it launches the greatest restoration project in the universe. In short, if God is Jesus, 
then we have to rethink everything. Now here in Mark 2, verse 1 through chapter 3 and verse 6, this paradigm, this model of the incarnation is going to challenge numerous Jewish expectations and assumptions. Now, do you recall the word pericope? You know this term, pericope. We talked about this term often when we were in Matthew. You all remember, um, oh, what's his name? I just, um, oh, went to Harvard. What's the professor? Um, oh, oh, I just forgot his name. But, huh? yeah, Peter Blair, yes, Peter Blair, Peter Blair, yes. He, 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 actually, he actually sang a rap for me with the word pericope in it. He made it up after one of my sermons. I thought, Peter, why did you do <laughs> Pericope, all right? A, a pericope is an individual story. It's an individual episode. It's a little window into the life of Christ, all right? And understand, the gospel writers would take these pericopes, these stories, and they would move them around, and they would associate them in certain ways to make certain cases, to make certain points, all right? The gospel writers often do not record things in strict chronological order, right? They'll take these little episodes, a healing episode, a teaching episode, right? A conversation over here with the disciples, and they'll arrange those in such a way to make a point, all right? So what Mark is going to do is take five of these little stories, these little pericopes, and he is going to line them up in rapid succession, and he will demonstrate just how disruptive the incarnation was for the Jews. Jesus is coming along, and he's just exposing numerous cracks in their model. All right? So let's read from chapter 2, verse 1 all the way down through chapter 3 and verse 6. All right, lots of text this morning. Here we go. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, are you ready for this? Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Well, there's a challenge Jesus is doing and saying things that we didn't expect. Verse 13, 
he went out again by the seaside, beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him, many sinners. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? That's not what they expected. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Next story, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and, why do John's disciples and disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. There's your third pericope. Verse 23, here's a fourth. One Sabbath, he was going to the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God at the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence? which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then look at these words. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That was shocking. Now, chapter 3 and verse 1, here's a fifth story. And again, what Mark is doing, he's just collecting these different stories and he's arranging them and he wants to make a point. When you read through all of them, you're supposed to grasp the main point. So again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, 
and his hand was restored, the Pharisees went out and immediately, look at this, immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. All right, so five stories. And let's summarize them. In Pericopes 1 and 5, you have a miracle. Jesus heals a paralyzed man, and Jesus heals a man with a withered hand. In the second, we have a story about Jesus' relationship with tax collectors and sinners. In the third and fourth, we have two questions concerning law observance, fasting and Sabbath. But there was a common theme that just runs right through all five stories. And it's this. It concerns Jesus' confrontation with a hostile religious establishment. How will the most fervently religious people in world history react to a man who acts as if he is God incarnate. How are they going to react to that? Here's a man who comes and he acts like God. And how will they react? And would you notice how these five stories are really bookended by two vastly different responses? Look at the middle of verse 12. Here's one reaction. They were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. That's one reaction. And look at chapter 3 and verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Right, friends, Jesus introduces a Copernican revolution. The earth moves. Are you going to embrace him or are you going to destroy him? Those are your two options. Embrace the incarnation or execute Jesus. Those are the two responses. Those are, in fact, the two responses the world has been wrestling with ever since. Now, let's just drill in just a little bit on these episodes. In the first story, four friends bring a paralytic man to Jesus for healing. Now, we have indeed seen healing before. We have seen prophets engage in healing before. But there is something here that we have not seen before. It's right there in verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. What? Elijah never said anything like that. Moses never said anything like that. Who on earth can look at a man and say, your sins are forgiven? Imagine going to the doctor and he says, I can help you. And by the way, I'm going to forgive your sins. You probably will not be going back to that doctor. And so here's the reaction, verse 7. Why does this man, this man, speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And friends, the scribes are correct. Only God can forgive sins. That's exactly right. 
So either Jesus is God incarnate or he is blaspheming. In the second story, Jesus makes his way along the coast. There he sees Levi sitting there in his little despicable tax booth. Levi is a turncoat. He collects taxes for the Roman oppressors. And any true Jewish Messiah would have come along and exposed Levi's anti-patriotism, right? Any true Messiah is going to do that. But Jesus suddenly invites him into his inner circle. And it only gets worse. In verse 15, we learn that Jesus fellowships with many such tax collectors and sinners. A whole crowd of them. And in verse 16, the scribes and the Pharisees are indignant. This is not the way the Jewish Messiah is going to operate. Not at all. He's going to throw off the oppressors, not invite them into his inner circle. But in verse 17, Jesus' response is, frankly, a Copernican revolution. And when Jesus heard it, he came to them, sorry, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous. All you righteous Pharisees, I didn't come to call you. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Friends, Jesus did not come for the self-righteous. He didn't come for the religious zealots. He didn't come for all those fastidious observers of the Old Testament law who thought they were good because they kept every jot and tittle. It's not why he came. He came for sinners, not for saints. What? Yes, he came for sinners, not for saints. And by the way, we're all sinners. We just have to recognize it. Then we come to the third pericope and a question about fasting. The disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees carefully observe Old Testament religious fasts. Nothing wrong with them. The Old Testament frequently described Israel as an adulterous wife. But these Jews aren't going to be found unfaithful when God comes. Not at all. They are fasting. They are preparing to meet their God. Nothing wrong with that. But Jesus' disciples over here are not fasting. Well, why aren't they fasting? Well, here's the Copernican revolution. God is already here. We're not fasting in preparation for God to come. He's already here. The time for preparation is over. God has arrived in His incarnation. The bridegroom has come. That's what Jesus is claiming. And that leads to number four. In the fourth story, Jesus and His disciples make their way through fields of grain. And Jesus' disciples offend the religious convictions of the Pharisees by popping heads of grain into their mouths. They're eating the grain as they walk through the fields. And the Pharisees view this as a flippant dismissal of the Sabbath. And of all the Old Testament laws, none was more sacred to the Jews than Sabbath observance. You know this. And the Jews created a whole monstrosity of laws that were designed to protect the Sabbath. But Jesus' response was revolutionary. 
In the first place, he claimed in verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What he means is this, God did indeed design a day of rest for you and for your own good. That's true. It goes all the way back to the creation week. But you treat the day as if it's more important than the people for whom God created it. You make the day more important than the people. Then in verse 28, Jesus just drops the single comment that must have exploded like an atomic bomb in their minds. Look at these words, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Like, what? Imagine a very ordinary person, a poor man, walking into our church this morning and claiming that Sunday worship, the worship that we have been observing for 2,000 years now on the Lord's Day, is all about him. It's all about me, he says. What are you going to do with that? The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. It's like somebody walking in here and just saying, well, look, I'm, I'm Lord of Sunday, everybody. It's all about me. We come to the fifth story now. Here's a man with a shrunken hand. He's in the synagogue. And the Jews are so desperate to find fault with Jesus, they arrive at the ridiculous conclusion that healing a man on the Sabbath is actually an evil work. But Jesus does not let the opportunity for a Copernican revolution to pass. So verse 3, And he said to the man with withered hand, Come here! Jesus then deliberately addresses the religious police that are skulking in the synagogue shadows, just waiting to write Jesus up for an infraction. You can just see them. We're going to get them this time. He looked at them, verse 4, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. All to say, Jesus was deliberately disruptive. He is taking the whole Jewish religious system and turning it on its head. And the Jews knew it. And that's why, verse 6, they are seeking to destroy him. We've got to be done with him. All right? So clearly what Mark has done is he has arranged these five stories, all right, that demonstrate for us the revolutionary character of Jesus' incarnation. We are not dealing here with an ordinary man at all. The incarnation disrupts everything. You cannot embrace Jesus without looking at the world in a whole new way. God has come in human flesh. Now, Thomas Kuhn argued that a paradigm shift occurs when too many cracks appear in the old model. And the old model can't contain all the new discoveries. That old model has to be discarded. Well, do you know that's precisely what Jesus of Nazareth taught centuries before Thomas Kuhn made his famous discovery? It's true. It's right there in verse 22. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. 
If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. That illustration is situated right here at the heart of these five stories where the God-man keeps overturning Jewish assumptions. Because of the fermenting agents of new wine, you cannot pour it into old leather wineskins. The new wine just eats away at the delicate skins, producing cracks, and then it drains out onto the ground. In other words, the old cannot contain the new. You can't put the old into the new. That's Jesus' point. The old understanding, the way you all are thinking over here, can't cope with the new. That's his point. The old Jewish assumptions that you think are all right can't handle this new theology of the incarnation. You don't have the categories to even process this. So let's destroy Jesus. The old cannot contain the new. In other words, again, the incarnation disrupts. It is jarring. The humanity of God did not sit well with the Jewish establishment. It simply didn't have the categories for thinking about God in human flesh. So let's destroy him. They don't know how to think about a man who goes around forgiving sins, about a man who goes around healing on the Sabbath, and a man who calls sinners and tax collectors into his kingdom. I mean, what do you do with that guy? The old cannot contain the new. So friends, are you going to embrace him or set about to destroy him? Do you realize that world history ever since Jesus has been wrestling with that exact question? You either embrace him or you set about to destroy him. Friends, don't accept the idyllic, hallmark, Thomas Kincaid version of the Christmas story. We've talked about this previous years. All right, friends, when, when Herod discovered Jesus born in Bethlehem, he refused to embrace him. Instead, he sent his soldiers to slaughter him. Those are the reactions. Embrace him or slaughter him. Jesus brought trouble into the world through his incarnation. And with that in mind, let's turn back now to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And let's just notice how John also develops this theme of disruption. John chapter 1, of course, introduces us to the Word made flesh. In John chapter 1, Jesus begins calling disciples. And he catches a glimpse of the initial bias the disciples had against Jesus when he called Nathaniel. Nathaniel in verse 46 says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, that's disruptive. God wouldn't come from Nazareth, right? Not the Messiah, no. Go to chapter 2. Jesus disrupts the whole temple system when he journeys down to Jerusalem for Passover and he purges away the trafficking and animal sacrifices. And the Jews in verse 18 want to know, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Like, who are you? Why do you get to do this? And Jesus answers in a very puzzling way, 
like new wine and old wine skin. We don't know what to do with this. It just sort of cracks the whole system. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. What's that mean? Nobody understood that until after Jesus resurrected. The old can't contain the new. Go to chapter 3. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, diligently inquiring about his miracles. And in verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, what does that mean? A ruler of the Jews has never heard this before. A sincere ruler has never heard this before. So he says, can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Like, how is that even possible? And as the conversation progresses, Nicodemus becomes more confused. And in verse 10, Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you did not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Friends, Nicodemus does not understand the incarnation. The Son of Man came down out of heaven to give us new birth. Uh, What's that mean? I don't understand it. Then we come to John chapter 4. And Jesus converses with the Samaritan woman, and she initially is confused by Jesus. He's a Jew, and he's communicating with her. Well, he's not supposed to do this. The Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans, and the disciples also marvel. Like, why is he talking with this woman? The Jewish Messiah seeking out a Samaritan woman? Like, how can this be? Well, you need new categories, Your old way of thinking can't handle this new Jesus. In John 5, we hear echoes of Mark 2. Jesus heals a lame man on the Sabbath. And notice in John 5 and verse 16, the indignant response of the Jews. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus does not back down. Instead, he presses his true identity, verse 17. But Jesus answered them, my father, my father is working until now. That is to say that God the Father was working on the Sabbath. And I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's exactly what he was doing. God in human flesh. Well, how can this be? The incarnation disrupts. We don't know what to do with this, so let's kill him. Then in John 6, all right, Jesus feeds the 5,000. He then explains that merely eating bread will not grant eternal life. You must sacrifice the Creator. And look at these astonishing words in verse 52. John 6, verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Well, what's that all about? 
We will get there eventually in John 6, all right? But just notice how disruptive his teaching is. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Jesus never backed down from difficult teaching. They simply didn't have the categories for processing a theology of the incarnation. Then we come to John chapter 7. By the way, I'm not going to go through all every chapter of John. All right? In John 7, Jesus goes to a feast at the temple, and his teaching is shocking. Look at verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? That is, he was never trained in the rabbinic schools. He did not enjoy the formal education that the scribes and the Pharisees enjoyed. But, but notice the source of Jesus' knowledge. Verse 16. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. In other words, it came straight from God. And his statement is so disturbing that some of the Jews set about to murder him, while others are intrigued. Verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? They don't like this guy. They want to kill him. And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? What, what is Jesus doing here? He's introducing a paradigm shift, a Copernican revolution. You've got to do something with this man. And look at how much consternation the Jews experience. Verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, which is true of Jesus, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. This is really, truly incredible confusion. Here is God in human flesh. What are we going to do with him? We're divided. And in John 8, the challenge of the incarnation continues when Jesus calls himself the light of the world. And Jesus responds to his antagonist in verse 19, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. There's a dramatic claim to being the very Son of God, incarnate in human flesh. And finally, in John 9, Jesus heals a blind man. But the opening of blind eyes was a miracle never seen in the entire Old Testament. It was a miracle reserved exclusively for deity. And the blind man says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And the Pharisees become indignant. No, 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 no. Jesus is not from God, they say. That's impossible. Friends, I could just give you many more examples. All right? We could just keep going all the way through John. But I think it's clear enough. The incarnation disrupts. The coming of God in human flesh is a whole new way of thinking 
And it doesn't fit into those old wineskins without them cracking and bursting. You need a whole new way of thinking about the world if you are going to embrace the truth of God and human flesh. The old paradigm, the old model won't do. This is a Copernican revolution. This is the earth moves. God became man. That will turn your world upside down and inside out. And let's conclude then by turning to John chapter 20. And let's see where all this is going. By the way, I do like to back out from time to time from our exegesis of individual chapters and get get the whole. Because the fact is, when the gospel writers wrote, they had a sense of a whole. It wasn't that they were just collecting these pericopes. They had a whole agenda in mind. And when we come to John chapter 20, we learn something of, Jesus, of John's whole purpose in telling us the gospel of Jesus. What are we supposed to do with the incarnation? What are we supposed to do when God enters human history and challenges not only the local religious system, but in fact challenges the whole world? Well, John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, give us the application of John's gospel. Here is John's point. This is why John wrote. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And we know that term Christ from a previous sermon. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Friends, when the doctrine of the incarnation, the doctrine of the incarnate Son of God just invades your world and disrupts your life and challenges your whole view of reality, this is your obligation. You must believe in his name. That's the response. You must believe in his name. Now, I suspect that for someone here, it may mean that you need to believe for the first time. You may need to believe for the first time. If you have never before come to faith in Jesus Christ, let me just tell you the truth. Jesus will change your life. That's the whole point. Jesus will change your life. He will disrupt your worldview. He will change your thinking. He will not leave you where you are. He didn't come to leave you where you are. He will reorient your affections, your desires, your purposes, your ambitions, your attitudes, and your priorities. Friends, you do not You are not saved by works. It's not what I'm saying. All you have to do is come to Jesus in faith. But when you come, realize that Jesus is not about to leave you where you are. He didn't come to call the saints. He came to call the sinners. And if you are perfectly content with your current identity, your affections, your sexual desires, your attitude, your your values, your priorities... If you're just content with your life as it is right now, can I just say this to you? He didn't come for you. He didn't come for you. He came not for those who are self-righteous and perfectly content with who they are. He didn't come for you. He came for sinners. 
He came for anyone who says, look, I'm a sinner and I need to change. I need a whole new way of thinking about the world. I need my life to be wholly changed. If you are willing to confess your sins, then come to Christ. But again, be prepared for Him to change you. And this, by the way, is why I'm very, very cautious, even with our children, and not rushing people to a verdict. Bow your head and pray, right? You need to realize who Jesus is. Who is this person that we are embracing? He will change your life. In fact, I've been, I've been so bothered by this that I think I'm going to come back uh, early in January and, and, and have more of a conversation with you all about what the gospel really is. Because we are seeing, sadly, a number of deconversions. A number of people who grew up in Christianity and make it professionally on, and then they, they suddenly deconvert. And it's happening a lot now. And I'm very, very concerned about that. And I've had some conversations with some of the Bible faculty at Bob Jones and others that have experienced this. And I, I really want to get to the root of this. We need to get to the root of this. And I, I think part of this is we, we rush people in and we say, pray this prayer and you're done. And we, we don't explain to people, no, Jesus came to change everything. He came to totally change your life. Because you are bound in sin and he wants to release you. And if you want to just continue in your sin, right? He didn't come to leave you there. All right, I'll come back to that, I think, sometime in January. But let me just conclude with this. For others of you, most of you, believing in Jesus means that we just we keep on believing and we daily submit ourselves to his restoration agenda. Friends, God came in human flesh to deliver us, not to affirm us. And you have not yet won the battle with the flesh. None of us have. You have not yet been restored entirely into His image. You still have the old paradigm. You still have the old wine, the old man dwelling within you. All of us do. The old man has to be daily mortified, put to death. The old man does not want to embrace biblical truth. But if you have been born again, you can in fact be filled with a new wine of the new covenant. But you have to just keep on being filled. As I mentioned last week, when we embrace Jesus as Christ, when we embrace Him as the King, when we set about to live in His kingdom now, we live in the middle of the greatest restoration project in the universe. It's a great way to think about your life now, isn't it? We live in the middle of the greatest restoration project going on in the universe. It's really what began with Easter. God is restoring and renewing His entire creation And he is in the business of transforming your values, your sexuality, your identity, your desires, your outlook, your attitude toward money. You're thinking about your job and your coworkers, your ambitions. He's setting about to restore all of that and to prepare you to live in his kingdom. You are in the middle of that whole process by which he is making all things new. And when you embrace Jesus, it's true, you still have the old desires And when you embrace Jesus, the old temptations still overwhelm. And when you embrace Jesus, you will cry out with the martyrs that we met last week. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How long until I'm finally done with my sin? You ask yourself that question this week. You get really, really tired of your sin. I do. How long before I can discard this old wineskin? And be filled entirely with the new wine of your spirit. 
Friends, that is where we live right now. We live in the how long. And I really appreciate the many, many comments that I got last week from teenagers all the way up to older people in our church and even some online about how helpful it was to think about this question, how long? How long? That's where we live right now. We live in the how long. How long, O Lord, before you're done with this restoration project? So let me conclude by just repeating the five points of application I made last week. All right, here they are, rapid succession. First of all, in the how long, never question the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Don't question that. Even when he calls you to martyrdom, never question his sovereignty. Second, remember that Jesus has already dealt decisively with your biggest problem. Revelation chapter 1 told us he loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. That's your biggest problem. You've already been delivered. Now, you still sin. That's true. You have to be sanctified. But your sins have already been atoned for at Calvary. Your sins are already pardoned. You were damned to a crisis eternity. And Jesus has already solved that massive problem for all of us who put our faith in Christ. Thirdly, trust Jesus' timing. When you ask how long, Jesus has every right to answer the way he answered the martyrs. Wait a little longer. Wait a little longer. Some of you, the Lord has asked to wait for a very long time. And I know, I know your sufferings. I can heal you. Wait a little longer. I can solve that financial difficulty. Wait a little longer. I can resolve your work situation. Wait a little longer. I can take away your inordinate desire. Wait a little longer. Wait in His timing. So what if God says, wait a little longer? And what He means by that is wait until you get your resurrected body. That's what the martyrs waited for. Wait a little longer. What do they want? They wanted to be re-embodied. And he said, wait longer. So for some of you, whatever you're waiting for, you may have to wait until you're resurrected. Can you handle that? Well, that led to our fourth point of application. Remember that Jesus Christ has already sent his Holy Spirit to prepare us to live in the new creation. That Holy Spirit, like new wine, just comes and it fills the new vessel. All right? That new creature that can actually hold the new wine of the new spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit is the same Holy Spirit who drove Jesus out into the wilderness for 40 days of blistering persecution, satanic assault, temptation. That same spirit has been given to you. That's true. That same spirit has been given to you to prepare you to live in the new creation. So Jesus may indeed ordain trouble for you. This is God the Father ordained trouble for Jesus. But again, we have the same Spirit indwelling us and recreating us and making us new. And that led to number five, and I will not develop this. But fifthly, seek to live out the Beatitudes as subjects of the King. Biblically speaking, the kingdom is that space between the resurrection of Jesus and the new creation. We live in the kingdom now. And how do you live in the kingdom now? And the answer is, look at Jesus' preaching on the kingdom. Look at the Beatitudes. Look at the Sermon on the Mount. You cannot live out the Beatitudes in the flesh. It's absolutely impossible. But with the Spirit living within you, you can, in fact, live those things out. You can try, at least. You can begin to. 
So friends, if indeed you believe that the King, Jesus Christ, was born 2,000 years ago at Christmas, then what you have to do is submit yourself to His benevolent rule right now. And when you say, how long, O Lord? And He says, wait a little longer. All right, just, just take that as the sovereign purposes of God for your life. Shall we pray together? Father, we thank You for... Christ, we thank you for the incarnation, and I pray, Lord, that the incarnation truly would disrupt someone's whole view of reality this morning, and that they might even come into the kingdom. Father, I pray for our people, Lord, this will be a difficult Christmas for some, We have those in our church who are sick, some very sick, some, Lord, who really can't even make it over to a service on Sunday morning. I haven't been able to, Lord, for many weeks, many months. Lord, we pray that your spirit would give them joy this Christmas season. We pray, Lord, that they would truly delight in the incarnation through difficulty, through challenge, through toil. Lord, there is so much uncertainty in our own future, with our country, with the new wave of the coronavirus. And Lord, we just thank you that we can trust you and rely on you. And as we wait on you and we ask how long and you say wait longer, I pray, Lord, that each of us would be willing to just wait longer. In the meantime, be busy about what you've called us to do and being faithful where we are. Father, we pray for those who are elderly, those who really have not been able to come for years to one of our services. They're in nursing homes, or really can't make it out of their bedrooms, can't make it out of bed in some cases. We pray that you would strengthen them. And Lord, we know that we have members of this church that would delight in going home. In some cases, Lord, we thought we would lose them months ago and years ago, and you've allowed them to wait a little longer. We pray, Lord, that you would give them joy, peace. We think of Mrs. Granberg this morning and just give her, Lord, real contentment and joy in her infirmity. Pray for Ruth Ann and uh, the Bosbergs as they care for her. Just give her joy, Lord, even in her declining years during this Christmas season. We think of Della Klein. We pray, Lord, for grace and strength for her, and we pray for the Campbells as they care for her. Lord, we think of our sister Dee, who underwent surgery recently. We thank you, Lord, that you are restoring her. We pray for Brother Jeff as he cares for his mom, and we just ask, Lord, that she would indeed be back with us soon. So good to see Brother Limeball this morning. Lord, we pray for ongoing strength for him grace for him, and we're just so thankful, Lord, that he is with us, and we thank you for the joy that he radiates of Christ. Father, we just ask that those who are sick even now, that you would just just give them real joy. We think of several ladies in our church who just who can't be here, and several that are really suffering. We just pray for uh, strength for them, and may they just 
delight and resting in your good timing. Father, I pray for those who are traveling, give them safety in the road, and I pray, Lord, that as we run into people who have no idea what Christmas is all about, that you would give us a word to say and that we might, by our testimony, uh, bring people to Christ. And I just pray, Lord, that you would give us just a wonderful week and may our hearts be set on Christ and his incarnation and may the joy of what he has done for us in solving our biggest problem already, Lord, just enlighten us and illumine us and fill us with joy and in this otherwise dark world. And we pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.